Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And in the last hour, I've added another doctor to the studio. So we're going to have a fascinating hour with Dr. Boyd Sievers. And uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I usually host Wednesdays where we talk about Old Testament. And this is the really the, the final episode this year of our Old Testament series. Then we're going to go to our Sunburnt series, and then we'll resume it again in the fall. But Dr. Boyd Sievers has been a... Um, teaching Old Testament at the University of Northwestern since 2000. And prior to that, he lived in Israel for eight years with his wife and four kids. And he's led numerous trips to Israel for study. Um, And he's doing another one in two days. So today we're going to talk about the uh, book that he's written called Warfare in the Old Testament, the organization, weapons, and tactics of ancient Near Eastern Armies. This has never been done on this show anyway. <laughs> Boyd, very welcome. new information. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, it's quite a resume you have. And the topic today is so interesting that um, I can't wait just to jump in. So um, why does the Old Testament include so much warfare? Well, because they fought a lot of wars, quite simply. <laughs> All uh, right, let's well, move on. <laughs> yeah. I think that it, uh, the Middle East is a, I'm going to say, a rougher place even today than what we know in the, the West. And in the ancient uh, Middle East, that was clearly the case. And you had lots of different people groups fighting over too few resources, and so they simply had lots of war. Uh, I think another thing that people need to keep in mind is that the Old Testament covers a long time period. If you go from Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, that's, what, 1,600 years or so, using round numbers. And the New Testament, by contrast, is less than a century. So you're going to have more wars over 1,600 mm, years you know, than over um, a much shorter time period. And they, uh, I think war was just a normal part of life for most of the people over there. And a lot of people struggle with the idea that the God of the Old Testament seemed to be harsher and, and, and more open to war and blood and death and everything else. What's with that? Well, uh, I think God speaks to people where they are in ways that are relevant to them. This last semester, I taught a class in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament, where God formalized his relationship with his people through a covenant. And the form that he used for that was the covenantal form of the time. You know, it was something that they would know and they would understand. And so that's how he shaped the way that he would relate to them. And if warfare was uh, very common for them and important to them, then he is going to be involved in that. Uh, If you think, for example, of when uh, Saul was made king, should he have been made king? Probably not. But the fact that he was, what the, the first reason that the Israelites gave for wanting Saul to be their king was, we need somebody to go out and lead us in battle mm-hmm. because warfare was a big deal. We need to be more effective in our military. So it was just more common. Yeah. So if if the goal was we need someone to go pick up the pizzas, they would have made Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Conspicuously absent from the, from the, from the text. But it brings up a point, though. Are you are you suggesting that um, that war was appropriate on some level? I mean, the the, the Old Testament is is less a hist- I mean, it's a historical book. These things actually happen, but it's teaching us something theologically about God 
And so what are we learning theologically about God in this warfare that happens in the Old Testament? Well, unfortunately, warfare is, I think, an inevitable part of human culture and human history. And it, it always has been and it will until the Prince of Peace comes and takes over and then we can get away from that and we can beat our swords into plowshares mm. using that figurative language. But until then, there will be militaries and there will be wars. And so um, we want God to be involved in all that we do in all, all facets of our cultures. And so I think it's quite appropriate that believers would be in the military and be ethical people in the military as well as uh, ethical people in, in all facets of society. So it's, it's going to be there, and so let's do it well, do it as best we can. And I've seen uh, work that the Israelite weaponry evolves in its sophistication throughout sort of the chronically and through the text. Is this true? Did they learn better how to conduct warfare through different weapons and armor, even maybe learning from some of the cultures around them? Sure. Um, w- the book that I wrote, uh, I wanted to learn how, how did they do that? How did David conquer the... Uh, nations around him? How did Joshua lead the Israelites to conquer the land of Canaan? How, how actually, you know, practically did they do that? And so I studied all the, uh, the militaries of the cultures around them, the Egyptians and the Israelites and, and everybody. And you find general practices of militaries by weaker nations and then by stronger nations. And they use tactics that are appropriate. The weaker people do guerrilla tactics, you know, the things that the outmatched people can do, whereas the stronger nations use their big weapons and their chariots and whatever, and you well, let's line up strength for strength and go at it. And so you see an evolution of weaponry and tactics, and you especially see that when you have a small nation like Israel began growing into be a big, sophisticated nation. And so it's, it's the only Middle uh, Eastern material that I found where you see that evolution so very clearly because they weren't just a small nation or just didn't start writing as a big nation like Egypt or Assyria did. You see them evolving, and so you can see all of that development in the actual biblical text, which is fascinating. When you start to compare the gods of the nearby cultures at that time in the Old Testament, um, how was how was God comparing to them? Yeah. So the God of the of the Israelites was like and unlike the God or gods of the peoples around them. Okay. Uh, as I uh, work in the ancient world, work with material in the ancient world, both physically from doing archaeology as well as textually, it used to really surprise me how much similarity there was between the material in the Bible and the God of the Bible and the materials of the cultures around them and the gods around them. There is overlap. There is a, a good deal of overlap. However, there is meaningful difference as well. And so I think it's interesting to understand the overlap because that helps me better understand what the Bible is saying. But then I try to focus on what the difference is because the differences are then what God is asking his people to do differently than the peoples around them and the world around them. And so the the God of Israel was involved in warfare. He commanded it. He said he would go before them. He would bless them with victory. He would bless them with uh, land and goods through military victories. And the other nations, the gods of the other nations did that as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there are other gods, but they understood them to be that. And so in their uh, texts, in their theology and their thinking, that's how, that's how they viewed it as well. And so there's, there's a great deal of overlap in that. Now, all that said, the God of Israel was different in certain ways, like his, 
uh, ethical bar for Israel was higher than than the people's uh, than than the other people's. Israel was supposed to be, um, can I say, nicer, kinder, more ethical in the ways that they practiced their uh, military. So this was probably part of how God uh, showed that he was actually God, was that in response to these other cultures that had their warring gods, mm-hmm. making claims that their gods were strong and that that strength would be evidenced in their military might, God was showing, nope, I'm actually God here. And maybe this is another one of the reasons why we see so much war, is he is just responding to some of the other claims of the different cultures to show, no, I'm actually God here. Right. And... Um the basic uh, thought at the time was, if my God is better than your God, I can beat you up, and I can take your stuff, and my army will beat your army. And that if you're David and you have the strongest military in the area, then that's really nice, you know, because you're going to win. <laughs> and that's great. However, if you're not the strongest, then that becomes more problematic. And I think of uh, the battle, well, it's connected to Shiloh's, because I go over to, I'm going to go be excavating at Shiloh in just a few days again. So... Uh, at Shiloh, the ta- they had the tabernacle. The Israelites had the tabernacle there. And the Philistines were stronger than them. And there was going to be a battle. And so the sons of Eli took the Ark of the Covenant away from Shiloh and lost it. Israel was weaker than the Philistines at the time. And yet God's, God let Israel be judged through the stronger Philistines. But then he showed he was still over the Philistines, that he could mess up, mess them up. You know, he could make their statue of their God fall down and, you know, do a you know, give them tumors and all kinds of stuff like that. So, yes, God did show himself uh, through through the historical events and through the military of the time. Hmm. So Boyd Sievers is our guest, and we're talking about uh, warfare in the Old Testament, which is always uh, a challenge when you're sharing your faith with people who may not know much about the God of the Old Testament. He sounds like he's kind of a... Kind of a loose cannon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bloody, mm-hmm. brutal, and barbaric, as yeah. one person yeah. says. Yeah. And, but you've already phrased it in a way that feels very invitational to me. He's mm-hmm. relating to people based on what they were doing at the time. Yeah. See, if from our perspective, it looks bad. It looks harsh and, and whatnot. From their perspective, it looks normal or somewhat nice. He, he was nicer than what was current at the time. The other folks around them at that time, this, would, this, this was just status quo. This is the way they lived lived their life. And so um, it didn't look bad to them. Mm-hmm. So how do we as believers today, 2022, relate to what we see as this militaristic God of the Old Testament? Well, to understand that we are looking into a world that was a really long time ago, okay, far away in a very different culture. And we are looking at something that was appropriate for them, worked very well for them. And from our perspective, doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. And I what I like to do is to try to challenge people to think that, you know what, my perspective, my worldview is the one that I have, and so it's the one that I use. But it may not be entirely right. And if we were to fast forward 1,600 years or whatever, and someone was to look at what we do and some of the things that we say, they would probably judge us somewhat as well. And so I would want them to be a little humble about judging me and my world, and I think we should try to remember to be a little bit humble in judging what we find in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Dr. Boyd Sievers is our guest. His book is Warfare in the Old Testament, The Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern Armies. He's headed uh, to Israel in the next two days, right? Yes, that's an, right. And yet another archaeological dig. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are thrilled to be talking to him. We're going to continue our discussion after a short break.
Welcome back to the show. If you just joined us, hey, I hope you've had a good day. We're talking about uh, warfare in the Old Testament. This is a really interesting discussion with Dr. Boyd Seavers. He's written a book about it uh, called Warfare in the Old Testament, the Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern Armies. So there's uh, lots of uh, ripe discussion here. Um, Boyd, let's let's talk uh, about what warfare was like at the time of the Old Testament. I mean, how did nations fight? So that depended a lot on the nation's size and strength and ability to produce arms and train their soldiers. Uh, If you were a smaller nation, you might have an army of a few score people or a few hundred. If you were a large army, for example, uh, Egypt at the time of the Book of Judges may have been able to put 20,000 men into the field, and so they were the the, the best army of the time. So those are small numbers compared to what we have now, but for their time that was enormous. So a small nation would fight very differently than what a large nation would, and the ability of uh, those armies to produce um, shields and armor or some kind of protection if it wasn't metal armor, and then all kinds of weapons. Uh, if you were a small nation, you couldn't dream of having chariots, but if you were a, a large nation, then you would. And so, again, that's one of the things that you see in the Bible. You see Israel starting out, and they didn't, and then they weren't one of those big guys. They didn't have things like chariots. And so they started, and they were afraid of the nations who had chariots. And to them, it seemed like they were chariots of iron, which I assume means strength and power, and we can't possibly beat them. And so when God first gave them victories over nations with chariots, he said, destroy them and hamstring the horses because it doesn't say why, probably because you don't know how to use them and because I don't want you to grow into that so that you're more confident about your military ability than you are in your confidence in me. However, by the time of David and Solomon, then Israel is doing that. And they probably shouldn't have been doing that, but they did. It's a natural sort of growth and a natural thing that you need. If you're going to conquer a a huge empire and control it, you have to have an effective military. So they kind of needed to. On the other hand, apparently they should not have. So uh, uh, if you were a large nation, you had your infantry, you had your foot soldiers who had different weapons like um, spears and swords, and then you would have, well, the Bible simply says horse. You would have the troops that were connected to the horses. Later on, you would have cavalry that would ride them and shoot from them. But before that, you would be in a chariot that was a little cart of with two guys that the horses would pull. And they were scary. Uh, if, the, if you were charging at a bunch of infantry in a chariot, that would scare those guys and, and probably make them run. And you would be carrying an archer that could at- attack them. So If you're a big nation, you would have your chariots on the wings, you would have your phalanx, your line of soldiers, and you would go after the people in front of you. And if you're a little guy, you'd try to do some, whatever you could to try to um, survive all of that. Mm. You know, I'm just trying to imagine what the battlefield would look like. I mean, when I look and watch the opening to Gladiator or Braveheart, and you see these gruesome battlefield scenes, I can only imagine that it was that times five. Well, like at the beginning of Gladiator, I've not seen uh, Braveheart, but I've seen Gladiator, and that's where you have Rome, who's the big monster, mm-hmm. who has all of the everything, and so they can go strength against strength, and then the 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 other guys are the ones who have to use their bravery and, and individual skill to try to counteract that, and um, oftentimes they, did, they didn't make it. So that would be like what Israel was going against when they went against the Egyptians or against the Philistines. And then later on, for a short time, they were the big guys, and so they could go and uh, conquer the air, the the peoples around them. 
Mm-hmm. Hmm. So some of the bigger armies, would they pick on the small ones? I mean, yep, why, of course. Maybe, maybe the question is, why did nations fight against each other? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I've got 20,000 soldiers and I look at a, a, you know, a, 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 an army of 200 people, I go, we're not going to fight. We're just going to go... Crush them. Crush them, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and, and I'm going to go crush them because I want their mm-hmm. land, because I want to take power from them, because I want to take what goods they have, because I want to set up so that every year they have to send me... Uh, they called it tribute. I like to call it extortion. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can crush your army, and you send me your stuff every year, or I'll bring my army back and crush you again. Okay. And you don't want that to happen, and so You're you better mean, send me this. mean person, Boise. I, I, versus- I am. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was the way it, it worked yeah, at, right. at the time. Yeah. You know, Israel was subject to the Assyrians or the Babylonians, or when David was uh, the big shot in the area, he did that to everybody else, too. Yeah. So that's just how the world worked. Hmm. How did God's energy uh, affect the outcome of these battles at times? Because sometimes Israel was in in the place of being lesser or in the the case of David and Goliath, just one-on-one in these situations. Uh, What does the text or the Old Testament show us about God somehow interceding in the midst of the battle that affects the outcome besides just the strength of their military? Sure. So the, the Bible is full of examples of how God would be involved and sometimes would not be involved, or he would use the military in a negative way against his people. Like I mentioned earlier, the battle was the Battle of Ebenezer. I don't think I gave the name, but he let Israel be conquered by the Philistines. And so he would show his purposes through that. And we like it when the stories are the Israelites are the good guys and God gives them success, even if they are badly outmatched, as Israel was at the time of David and Goliath. And so he could show up and do something spectacular. And, but I think they were like us in a lot of ways is that I'm I'm trying to do something. I want to follow God in in this. And will God show up and do something spectacular here? And we want that to be the case. We'd love it if he did that uh, a lot. But sometimes you just don't know. So the, the Bible will highlight the times that God does that. So, Boyd, I'm a soldier. You're my commanding officer. What are you putting in my hands for battle? Um. If you are one of the Israelites going to conquer Canaan under Joshua, mm-hmm. maybe you have a sharp stick. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I have to sharpen it myself, don't I? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even by the time of the early monarchy, when Saul was the king and, and Joshua, or excuse me, Jonathan was the crown prince, those were the only two guys who had metal weapons in mm-hmm. the entire army. Like, and so I wonder, what are they? What are they holding? What are they using? Exactly. So they're probably using farm implements, maybe made of metal, maybe not, or sharp sticks, or you're using a a homemade bow, or you're using a sling. A sling is a wonderful uh, weapon that is cheap and easy to make, takes some practice to become skilled at it, but then you just use rocks. So it's it's very effective um, and and easier than a bow. So I'll bet a lot of them had slings, just like uh, you read about David with Goliath. And then when he had his military, he had a whole bunch of uh, slingers with him as well. Mm. So did they not have much armor then, I would assume, and some maybe some leather shields or something? Or what, <laughs> what did they carry to protect themselves? Okay, you're, you're asking a question that sounds like there should be a clear answer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you can, I can give you an answer based on bits of information. Since I studied all of these militaries and they all kind of gave the same general picture, you can use bits of information from all all these places to kind of fill in what was probably the basic picture. So all of that to say, I don't know for sure, but they're going to use a shield. 
and they're going to make it out of uh, boards, out of, of wood of some kind, and probably co- cover it with leather. I mean, anybody can make that. And so, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? I've, I've lost it now. No, just curious, like, what, how did they oh, protect themselves? But you're saying right. maybe just they're putting some boards together and they wrap it in some leather? Were they wearing any kind of armor across their uh, chest or any part of the rest of their body, a helmet, anything like that? Well, I'm going to go back again to... I don't know for sure, <laughs> right. but but the bits of information suggest that uh, for you may not have any kind of protection on at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see bare-chested bare, uh, Egyptians going into battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times it's smart to wear at least leather because that can give you some protection and can right. de- defect some of the blows, but it's heavy and it's expensive to make and it's going to be hot over there, but that's better. Can we make it out of metal? Can we make protection out of metal? If you the, the more sophisticated the army, the better you can do that. Let's go back to the story of David and Goliath. How many sets of armor did the Israelite army have? One. Saul had it, and where did he get it? Well, he probably got it from a dead somebody, or you know, then some, some, you know, he got one, and so he's going to give it to David, who's going to champ, be the champion for the army. So they have one. The only place in Scripture that I know of where it says the Israelite army made um, metal armor was in the later divided monarchy, mm-hmm. that they were sophisticated enough that they could do that. Now, in some of the... We, we have texts that tell us some of this information, and then we have pictures, limited number of imagery, uh, points of imagery from the, from the ancient world. And the Assyrians have pictures of Israelites in, in battle, and you can see some um, uh, armor there, but, you know, what exactly is it? And so... Mm-hmm. Maybe they have something decent, or maybe not. Hmm. All right, we're going to take a break, but we have lots of questions for Dr. Boyd Seavers when we come back, and some great comments are coming in. That's a very interesting topic as we discuss warfare in the Old Testament. One of the things I want to ask when we come back, Boyd, is, is God still involved in warfare? Even Peter had mentioned about the war in Ukraine, and very interesting topic. Dr. Uh, Boyd Seavers has uh, written a book on this uh, subject, and it's about warfare in the Old Testament. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be uh, right back in just a few minutes. Dr. Boyd Sievers uh, goes on archaeological digs and digs up 200-year-old weapons. All right. 2,000, so, even. 2,000. Two, I just look at I'm already corrected. <laughs> I thought 200 was impressive, but it's 2,000. 2,000, 2,000, 3,000 we found. 
So how does this work? Do you just show up on a dig site and you start just unearthing weapons, or how does this work? Well, Israel has lots of ancient sites in it, and so they have a whole branch of the government called the Antiquities Authority that oversees all of that. And so if you want to do a dig, you have to get a license from them, and so there's a whole process to it. You have to have a budget. You have to have your staff. You have to look at all the tools. Uh, You have to set up a big machine to do that, and then you have to show them that you can do it. And then each year you have to renew it by turning in a report of what you found last year. Mm. And, and then uh, it, it, it goes on from there. And so the site I'm going to is Ancient Shiloh, and I work with the Associates for Biblical Research, and this will be our fourth year digging at Shiloh. Mm, so good. Uh, Boyd's written a book called Warfare in the Old Testament, The Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern Armies. So, uh, Boyd, one of the questions I asked right before the break, and I want to get back to is God... Uh, is our God still involved in warfare? I think God is still involved in warfare, just like God is involved in everything. Uh, he commands history. He directs history. He allows people to make their own decisions for what they will do today, for what decisions they make as leaders of nations and whatnot. He allowed uh, uh, Putin to make the decision to invade Ukraine. And so I you know, I watch the the thing that's going on in Ukraine, and I'm struck... Number one, that people seem to have forgotten what warfare is like, that it's brutal, that people die, that, that there are terrible things that happen. And I'm like, wait, 70 years ago, you know, Europe was engulfed in, in war, and so this is just another manifestation of that. And I assume that God is involved in that. He does good things in that. He allows bad things uh, in, in war. Uh, I understand that the Ukrainian church is quite strong. And so, personally, I wonder if God didn't allow this so that he could disperse some of that strong mm-hmm. church through much of the world. I don't know, I, but that's that's a thought that I have, that God allows bad things to happen. He, did he not allow the early church in Jerusalem to suffer persecution so that he could scatter them? God uses things, even bad things. Yeah, I think a good example of that is that when Rome created such a peaceful Mediterranean world, it really set the stage for Paul then subsequently to be able to travel through the Mediterranean world and share the gospel. Had he been born 300, 400 years before Rome, he would have never been able to spread the gospel at the Couldn't level that he would. That. And that, yeah. was, that was brought about through Roman warfare. Right, yeah. So God uses, God directs history, and um, the military is just simply a part of that. So mm-hmm. I think God is involved in it. Does God take sides in war? Uh, well, I'd like to think so, and I'd like to think that we're on the good side, but uh, and, I, and I hope that that's normally the case, but I'm sure it's not always the case. There are examples, clear examples, of American troops committing atrocities in some like some of the recent, uh, recent Middle Eastern wars that we have had, and I think any decent-sized military through time is going to do wrong things because you give people power, and they're going. Some people are going to uh, misuse that. Mm-hmm. Boyd, how were militaries assembled? Uh, if I'm looking for soldiers, do I uh, hire them and pay them to be a soldier? Do I look for volunteers, or do I say you join the military, or I will kill you? Yeah, uh, I, the answer is all of those. Oh wow! Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer this uh, from the uh, Israelite history. When Israel became a nation, they it was all hands on deck. We're going to invade and conquer. So every able-bodied man, 20 years old and up, and I'll bet they took people 18 and 16, you know, mm-hmm. as well, because militaries do that, uh, has to serve in this. And then when the war of conquest is over, then you get to go home. And through the time of the judges, it was still a volunteer sort of army. But when there's a problem, 
the king could call all Israel and all, all the able-bodied men were supposed to come, and they didn't all uh, always come. Uh, or if it was a, a particular area, then the tribes, Israelite tribes around them were supposed to come, and it just didn't work all that well. Once you get to be the, once you get to have kings, then you need a standing army. You need permanent soldiers. And if you read carefully in the text about King Saul, he saw somebody who would be an effective soldier, so he took him in, into his service, and then he would pay him with land or something like that. He began the standing army, and David expanded that, and Solomon continued that yet more. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, you have a standing army, and then you have reserves. For example, when um, the Rabat Ammon, the, the capital of Ammon, was about to fall. David sent Joab and the army, and I assume that's the full-timers, and then David came later with all Israel. So I think he summoned the National Guard. He, you know, he called the part-timers, and then he came with them later. So they, they did all of those different things that you mentioned. Did that when they split after the time of Solomon? Did uh, then each kingdom, the twelve tribes of the northern kingdom, have to raise their own army, and the two tribes of the southern kingdom raise their own? Did they ever work together in warfare? Then were they sort of semi allies? Was there ever tension between them? I just I don't remember how the raising of armies worked after the nation split. Well, the the raising of armies isn't so clear, but all the rest of the stuff that you said was all true because. Uh, they had a civil war for nearly 50 years where they were fighting each other, which is understandable. We did that in our, our American history as well. And so they did that. But then they realized, you're ju- we're just draining ourselves and by, by killing off each other, so let's cooperate. And so the, you do have examples of when they work together to face common foes on to the northeast and to the southeast and all that. So they, they did all of that. But each kingdom would have had to have raised their own armies and supplied them. And the north had more resources, and the south had fewer. The south had the Davidic line, the south had Jerusalem and the temple, but they didn't have as much stuff. It's kind of like the north and the south in in our civil war. The north eventually won because we had greater resources. Well, the the northern kingdom of Israel had greater resources, too. Hmm. Dr. Boyd Sievers is our guest, and his book is called Warfare in the Old Testament, The Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern armies. Boyd, in your book, uh, you talk about um, Judah ben Eleazar, a young Israelite man helping attack Jericho. Would you talk about that? Sure. Well, with each of the armies that I treated, and I did all all the the major armies in the Old Testament, Israel, Egypt, Philistines, all of those, I began with a story of historical fiction where I took a battle that we know that army faced and we knew the, the layout of it and some of how it played out. And I used a name of somebody. Oftentimes I, I pulled it from history because we actually knew somebody who fought uh, in that battle or it was, it was an actual Philistine name or whatever. So I wanted to um, have come alive the reality of what it was like for Israel to attack Jericho and be in that part of their history where they are transitioning from waiting and hoping and now it's real. And so now they have to invade and fight. And so the guy that I used was a 21-year-old Israelite named Judah ben Eliezer. And I have him as a thoughtful, bright guy who's trying to process what's going on. And his dad just says, don't think about it, just obey what God says. Well, yeah, I need to do that. But if God has given you the intellect, then think about it as well. you know. And so then he's processing crossing the Jordan and circumcising the army when they're probably two miles away from Jericho, which to me is fascinating. You cross the the swollen river, so you're now in enemy territory, you camp right next to them, and then you disable your army with circumcision? You know? <laughs> That's not smart. 
that mm-hmm. that that's that you can't do that. But God said to do it, so they had to obey. And so my guy there uh, in that story is processing all of that, and then they go and attack Jericho, and so so he I, I take him through all of that as well. So it, it was just a way to. Um, add what what all I know about that world and their theology and everything um, through a military event. Hmm. What would have been his military experience? Well, I made him somebody who was born in the wilderness. Okay. So there were 40 years in the wilderness, and he was born during that. And so he would have grown up as a very hardened individual. If you live out in the desert all the time, you are tough. Uh, and he would not have been uh, very skilled in making lots of things. And so he would have made what he could. Uh, where did he get a weapon? I have him killing a dumb Moabite guy who was a good soldier, who was a soldier. And so he took the nice weapon from that guy. And so, uh, Peter, you and I were talking about where would you get this stuff? Well, you're going to gather it as you defeat other people and you can take their stuff. And so I have him doing that sort of thing. And his mom made him leather uh, armor, like you were asking earlier, what would you use? And so he's going to use that as well. And then I give him a cute cousin that he's going to uh, (laughs) hopefully marry later on because that's kind of how they did that. And so that was one of his motivations was to um, honor God, get stuff for his family, and then hopefully live through this so that he can get married and and settle down and raise a family. Mm -hmm. When, uh, Boyd, you look at some of the weapons that were used, what would have been one of the more unfortunate ways to go. <laughs> I, I think getting crushed by a rock would be a bad thing. I, it sounds, yeah. 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 So um, they used uh, slings at the time, mm-hmm. and a sling stone can be the size of a baseball. And so we find those. Um, we found 300 of them at the, the last site that we excavated. And so far at Shiloh, we found 60 of them. And I look at those things, and I know that that thing could be coming at me at 60, 80 miles an hour. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. That's gonna hurt. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's why that's that's <laughs> going to hurt. Well, for a second, and <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be very quiet. Yeah, yeah. So when when we find these things, to to me, it just draws out the the reality of the thing. I, you know, that's going to hurt. That's exactly what I think about when I I find so many of those. Or now we're at a site where the Romans attacked the site, probably in 69 AD, and we find ballista balls, you know, like a bowling ball that they shaped to be round so it would fly nicely. They made them of particular calibers. The Romans were so sophisticated, they made them of certain sizes so they could, um, how do you say it, control the distance and speed and all of that. They, They were really, really good. And so you see these bowling balls, and to think, if I was up on a wall or on the top of a building and a bowling ball hit me, it would hurt for a second, you know, and then, and then it's all over. So mm-hmm. I think that would be a bad way to go. So are the smaller baseball-sized ones, is that the equivalent to what David may have used in his sling? Because I've always had in my mind's eye that he had basically a skipping stone right. and just happened to get Goliath right in the right spot in, in, in the skull. You are correct. Um, at the time of David, an army would round stones, and if you had professional soldiers, what are you going to keep them busy doing? Making weapons. And part of that was that they would make stones round. Hmm. And, and you could cast them. But if you didn't have that time or didn't have that need, then you, he would pick up a skipping stone. You're exactly right. It was a water-rounded stone from the, the brook that ran through the valley. And so I've been to that valley many times. I've picked those up. I've cast those things. You know, I've, <laughs> I, do, I do some uh, slinging, and, and that's a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's what he would have been using. And... Um, Slingers can be highly accurate up to 40, 50 yards away. 
So the story of a young guy hitting a guy in the unprotected area of the forehead is just fits in that world because there are, there are tribes who can hunt small game at 30, 40 meters or about the same distance. They can, that's normal. And mm. so the story of David picking the guy off in the forehead with the first cast is indeed very plausible. Mm. And also a really good shot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just yeah. a really good shot. Yeah, he was highly skilled. Right. He had plenty of time to practice it when he was out there with the sheep. You're out there for hours and hours and hours, so you practice your musical skills, you practice your slinging. That's mm. what a Renaissance man would do. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we'll take a break. Dr. Boyd Sievers is our guest. His book is Warfare in the Old Testament, the Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern Armies. We'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are back with Dr. Boyd Sievers. Fascinating discussion we've had. If you've missed any of this, you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast, If especially if you like um, discussions on warfare, because we're talking about warfare in the Old Testament. He's written a book about it, The Organization, Weapons, and Tactics of Ancient Near Eastern Armies. He's about to make another archaeological trip in two days. And I'm just curious, Boyd, I, I know you've done many of these in the past in Israel. Do you find military remains when you uh, excavate? And are they from the Old Testament, from the New Testament? What 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 does it tell you? Yes, you often do. Okay. And they can be from the Old Testament and the New Testament. As I'm thinking back through the digs that I've been on, and I've been on, I don't know, half a dozen different ones or, so, or whatnot, uh, the oldest military remains that I found is when we were excavating at a site that was probably I, the city of I or AI, where um, Joshua, the Joshua captured and, and burned in, in maybe 1400 BC. We found 300 sling stones there, and a few other things as well. But the main military remains that we found were well, we found the fortress wall, and the gate. And then we found uh, the weapons that we found were the stones that had been well-rounded, about the size of a baseball. So you, you come in, that would hurt. Yeah, and whenever we find these weapons, I think it takes me to the reality and the pain and the devastation that would be involved in there. Uh, another place where I was digging that we found military remains was at a place that now is called Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in 732 B.C., it was a major city in northern Israel, and the Assyrians came in. This is when they were first starting to get to the Levant or the area of Israel so that they could take money, you know, and then power and all the things that we talked about earlier. And they destroyed it ferociously. And I was excavating the area of the city gate, and the thing was enormous. And I often wonder, how in the world could these things ever fall? But the militaries were capable enough to do that. So they punched through the gate, they conquered the city, and then they burned the gate. And the burning was so ferocious that you find what are called what the archaeologists call clinkers. And that's actually a technical term in archaeology. <laughs> and it's, it's where the fire is so hot that it will um, fuse, it will melt and fuse and change the material of stuff. Like here, you had mud brick that was used to build the gate. Well, it was fused to be about three times as dense as it had been before. So the mud brick 
melt. It combines with the stones and the pottery and all this other stuff. And it obviously, how do you, how do they make that, that hot of a fire? And how awful would it be to, to experience that? And I just, I, mm. I thought, wow, that would hurt. That, that would be awful. And this was the beginning of when the Assyrians were doing that to Israel. And then I think, God said he would do that. And then he did that to his people. And he used the Assyrians against Israel. He used the Babylonians against the South. And it was awful. And my theology needs to include a God who is holy, who gets angry at sin. And at, at points in history, he will get to where he's going to judge. And it's going to be awful. And when people say that the God of the Old Testament is so harsh compared to the New Testament, I, I often point out, have you factored in Revelation and the judgment that you have in Revelation? Because that's the, the nice, kind God that we have in the New Testament. But at the end of history, he's going to get mad and he's going to judge for sin and it's going to be awful yet again. So hmm. I, we, we find that stuff and it just takes me to the reality of how awful those things are. And, and Amos was pretty specific about how brutal the Assyrians were going to be when they came and took the northern kingdom over. Doesn't he have a passage in there that says that you'll be led away by hooks, yea, even by fish hooks? And the Assyrians were known to sort of string their captives together through the cheek or something with, with fish hooks. Or how did that work? Uh, specifically, I don't know. I'm going to say that there's a possibility that could simply be figurative language. Nonetheless, when you're saying that, I'm thinking of a picture of the Egyptians where they have Canaanites. Um, captives and they literally have hooks going mm-hmm. going through the noses you yeah. know, uh, of the captives and Assyria I don't know ab- about but it could be absolutely brutal yeah here's a question uh, Boyd please ask dr. Severs about what happened to the ten northern tribes after being taken captive to Assyria did survivors of the ten tribes exist in the south why or why not yes um, when Assyria took out the north. It took a number of decades to do that. Um, and they devastated the place. And they took away lots of captives. They didn't take everybody. They took away many of them. They killed a lot of them. And some of the people who were left fled to the south, to Judah. And that may be what this person, part of what that person is asking. So the ones who got taken away were taken to a part of Assyria and assimilated and disappeared into history. And the Assyrians brought in other peoples from other parts of their empire and put them in the north. And then you get a uh, mixture of people religiously and culturally. And those are the Samaritans at the time of the New Testament. So they're, they're a mixture of people. But some of the folks from the north uh, indeed went to the south. And you have kind of a population explosion in the south after the Assyrians took out the north. Mm-hmm. Boyd Sievers is our guest. Um, so, Boyd, when you do your study of warfare, and that includes you know, these archaeological digs you go on, and you dig up remains of ancient battles. What does all this teach you, um, you know, about your faith and about God and, and history? It, as I've said, it, show, it, it takes me to the reality and the horror and the devastation of many of these events, and it reminds me that God is overseeing history, and he may bring about devastation or he may use devastation, but God is over everything. Mm-hmm. And so when I go through my life, I, I like things to go well. And <laughs> often they do, but not always. Mm-hmm. And when it doesn't go well, if I did something to cause that, I need to fix that. But it may be that something else is going on. And I have to trust that God is um, 
taking care of that. Like with the pandemic we've gone through, you know, nobody liked that. But is not God overseeing that? And with the more chaotic world that we live in, maybe that's just the time that we are in, that it is time for an upheaval of some kind. I don't know. I'm not a prophet, but I I just wonder about that sort of thing. But finding the remains of ancient history, to me, makes me rethink what all happened and how God oversaw that. And then can I not trust that God is overseeing the history that I'm going through now? Hmm. As we look at this, Boyd, is it appropriate to approach the violence that is involved in warfare with at least some measure of sorrow and sadness? That that we don't just there's so much celebration of violence and on so many different levels. It seems like these days. So maybe one of the responses we as Christians can have is at least be people who are anchored in a bit of sorrow related to what's going on. Absolutely, tragedy is tragedy. You know, and God can use tragedy. God may bring about tragedy, but it's a tragedy. It's a bad thing. You know, pain and death are are terrible things, and we don't want that to happen. One day it will not happen, but for now it is going to happen. And so let's try to avoid it. Let's try to alleviate it as much as we can. And if you're in a position, if you're a policeman or a soldier or something, do your job well and do it ethically and avoid that as much as you can, but it, it is unavoidable at times. So let, let's let's be Christians in whatever place God has uh, put us and, and do it well. Mm. Boyd, with all of your archaeological digs, what would you consider to be one of your more or most exciting finds? Well, I don't know if this is the most exciting, but it's a real exciting recent one. Uh, we've dug for three years, this group I'm with has dug for three years at Shiloh, and we found 1,800 little things. You call them small finds. It could be a coin, a, an earring, or an arrowhead, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so last fall, I asked the, the dig director <clears throat> if... I could be assigned groups of these finds and study them with my students here at Northwestern. So we could say, what do we have and what does that tell us? And you compare them to similar sites and whatnot. And one set of the groupings was about military remains because I'm interested in military stuff. And so we found that we had lots of Roman military remains, which we didn't know because we nobody knew that the Romans were at Shiloh. But we have Roman arrowheads, sling stones, ballista balls, sandal tacks, um, we have clear evidence the Romans attacked Shiloh. And then if you look in the records, the, the Jewish uh, Roman historian of the time says that Vespasian, the general who later became emperor, took the Roman military up into that part of the country, and he tells about some of the places that he went. And if you put that on a map, you can see that he took the army within two, three miles of Shiloh twice. And so we have the Romans at Shiloh. Nobody knew that before. And I think we can say it probably happened at, during this particular campaign. Nobody knew that either. So that's really cool. That is fun to to be able to add to history and, again, to make it more vivid. Yeah, that's a fascinating discovery. I mean, this is how recent is this discovery? Yeah. Few weeks ago, uh, just, <laughs> and you heard it first on afternoons with Bill Arnold. Breaking news on afternoons with Bill Arnold. It's just, are you going to be doing some sort of documentation, some sort of write up of this? Sure. So um, when I go over, go over to the dig, uh, we 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 dig during the day, and then a few evenings a week you have meetings. We have, we pray and have a little worship, and then uh, and there's a lecture, and I'm going to be doing one of the lectures, and so I'm going to say, hey, we figured this out. Hmm. So when you dig up, you know, when you're moving all those tons of earth and rocks and you find all these things and you have to document it so carefully, and it's really tedious at at, at times. 
sometimes it can produce really awesome stuff. So mm-hmm. I want to do it to encourage the, the diggers who are there, but then to say, and we also found this, and nobody knew it. And this is worth putting into the academic record. So I plan to present it at a conference in uh, Denver in the fall and then probably write it up as an article as well. It's, it's a new <laughs> it's historical thing. Yeah. Have you ever attempted to plant something there, like Caesar, Caesar, <laughs> Caesar's rookie card? And, you know, <laughs> let somebody else try to find right. it? You play jokes like that at the dig. You know, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> you know, you know get out there. You, you have fun, too. I bet you do. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a fascinating hour. Appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Yeah, Dr. Boyd Sievers has been my guest, and Dr. Peter Kapner has... Uh, been with me as well as we continue our our old testament series which concludes today we're going to start our sunburnt series next week thanks for spending time with me today i look forward to our time tomorrow have a great night everyone Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.